the church will endure long after you and I have gone home. As, as Persis mentioned, long after you and I have gone home to be with the Lord, the church will endure because Jesus promised that it would. In Matthew, he says that he would build his church and the gates of hell would never prevail against it. And so we can thank the Lord for his faithfulness to preserve for himself a people who will always be zealous to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. We are this morning uh, breaking from our normal series in the gospel in in 1 Timothy. Uh, We've been preaching through Matthew so long that I continuously want to say the gospel of Matthew. But no, we're in 1 Timothy. We've been there for about a year now. We're breaking away to take a look this morning at the triumphant entry in John chapter 12. I invite you to turn there with me. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 9, 9 to 19. Before we jump in, we may be a little bit abbreviated this morning. Uh, see the time is getting away from us. Uh, so we may have to pick this up next, next Sunday. But uh, before we jump in, let's go ahead and just take this moment and ask God to help us by his spirit to illuminate the text before us. Would you please bow with me in prayer? Father, we thank you so much for all that you're doing around the interior. We see so many brothers and sisters from all over. We know, Lord, that uh, you're working and that you're moving among us, and we thank you, God, for your faithfulness, your faithfulness to your people and your faithfulness to continue to shine as a light to the nations, that all would have opportunity to know you and to place their faith in you. We thank you, Father, that you are always ready to reach out and to, and to reach down to those who are brokenhearted, who are humbled and weighed down by the weight of their sin, Lord. We pray, God, that your, your gospel would go forth to the ends of the earth. And Father, as we enter into Easter week, as we enter into this season of reflection upon what it is that you sent your son to do for us on the cross, I just pray, Lord, this morning that as we consider these things, you would remind us of their truthfulness, of their certainty, We pray, Lord, that you would show us the significance of these events as they unfolded. And we pray, God, that as we go out to share the good news with the world around us, we ask you, Lord, that you, Father, would work through our testimony, the testimony of a church that has long survived many hardships and many difficulties, that people would see that, that they would recognize it, they would know the hand of God through it all. We love you, Father. We pray now that your spirit would open our hearts and our minds to see what your word has to say to us. And we ask God, we ask you, Lord, that we would be struck again by the wonder of your son as he entered into the holy city of Jerusalem, only to be rejected by his people. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Hoshiana. Hoshiana. That would have been the cry on the air that morning. To you, it sounds like an unfamiliar term, but it is translated into English as Hosanna. I should say transliterated. The word means save. Save. And so on this, the first day of the week, as they were making preparations for the Passover, for the holy meal that was to come at the end of the week, families would have been busy visiting marketplaces, acquiring the provisions necessary to celebrate Passover, and somewhere on the wind, they would have heard this cry begin to echo, Hoshiana, Hoshiana. And one by one, as they heard that call, they would begin to look to where the source of it was. They would look to see where it was coming from. And slowly but surely, they would be gathered to the gate, to the road from Bethpage. And just outside of the city, 
They would have observed a crowd gathering. There would have been excitement in the room, in the air. There would have been people from all over the world gathered there to see what was taking place, what was unfolding. And over and over again, this chant would gain. It would sort of die down. It would gather up again. You'd press into the crowd. You'd make your way to the center of it all. And there you would see a very ordinary-looking man, not any different from you or me, with some friends of his just sitting there almost as if they were waiting for something. Off to the distance, some of the kids would have darted down into the valley to gather palm branches. And if you were an observer stumbling upon this scene, a Jewish observer, you would have known that the palm branch was symbolic of Zion, of a coming peace that only God himself could bring. This whole holiday festival is about the fact that God has to deal with our sin before he can bring salvation to us. The holiday festival of Passover, of Peshat, the fact that God has to raise up for himself a Passover lamb to take away the sins of the world. And so as these kids were gathering these palm fronds, immediately you'd begin to think something unbelievable, something very extraordinary is happening here. And then they would have continued to call out and you would have recognized that they were quoting from Psalm 118, a psalm that is read all over the world, even to this day by Jews who are celebrating Passover, a psalm associated with the Exodus, with Moses, largely attributed to Moses, a messianic psalm. And one by one, they would say, Adonai, Hoshiana. And somewhere, someone may have tested it out, the forbidden word. They may have just thrown it out there. Yahweh, Hoshiana, the Hebrew word for Lord, for the Messiah, for God's appointed one, his chosen one. Immediately, you'd have been struck by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The religious establishment is there. Immediately upon hearing that word, they would turn around and angrily begin to search to see who said it. In the distance, you can see arguing and enraged gestures as the religious establishment is arguing back and forth. One of them would have approached this man in the middle who appeared to be waiting and would begin to argue with him. And off to the side, you would see some other men, Galileans, walking with a donkey. And immediately... Zechariah 9.9 would pop into your head. Behold Israel, your king is coming, coming to you, riding on a donkey. And what had started off as broken cheers and broken chants that gained and waned and gained and waned, immediately as this man took his place on the donkey, it was very clear what it is that he was attempting to say as he took his place on this donkey. And one by one, the fervor would have picked up. And more and more, the crowd would have chanted in unison, Save! Save! Save, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. A psalm which they would undoubtedly read on Thursday evening or Friday evening. A psalm which they now chanted here to Jesus. These historical events are well attested by numerous witnesses recorded to us by all four Gospels. And let us not make any mistake. The people who were gathered there that day They weren't confused about what they were saying. They weren't confused about what title they were attributing to this man on the donkey. There was no doubt in their mind they were hailing the Messiah. They knew him to be riding into the city. 
What leads them to make this conclusion? As they're stumbling upon this scene, as they're encountering this man, why do they form this opinion? The Gospel of John tells us something unique that we don't read in any of the other synoptics. I want you to pick it up with me. Chapter 12, verse 9. It says, When a large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him. Now stop right there. Everybody in Israel knows who Jesus is. He has been performing miracles for three years. He has been healing the sick, casting out the demons, restoring sight to the blind, restoring hearing to the deaf. They know who he is. He is a famous man. He is a prophet. They suspect and they know he's probably something more. Earlier in the Gospel of John, the rhetorical question is posed, if this man is not the Messiah, if we look for another, what greater miracles could some other man do which this man has not already done? They already were encountering the power, the majesty, and the prestige of Jesus. They were already fairly certain that this was the one for whom they had been waiting for centuries. They came on account of him. And look at what John says next. Not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. This is truly the Son of God. Not only can he perform miracles that other prophets have performed in years gone by, but he can do the truly miraculous. He can turn back the curse of sin. He can turn back the power of death. And he can restore to life those that have perished. They'd heard this story. It seemed incredible to them, too good to be true. And yet here he is on Sunday making his way into Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And with him he brings his chief evidence of his power, his authority. It is a man raised from the dead, Lazarus himself. They see it clearly. They understand exactly what's going on. And yet tragically, in just six days' time, these same people who are chanting the Messiahship of Jesus are going to cry out for his death and his crucifixion. We're presented here with a problem. Why does this happen? How does it happen? And I could talk to you about this from several different perspectives. We could talk, to you, we could talk regarding Satan, the power of the devil, his schemes, his machinations, his manipulations. We could discuss this from the perspective of the sinful soul, the sinful individual self. We could look at the chief priests, the religious establishment. We could look at these characters who played a role in wanting to throw down Jesus. In fact, John even makes mention of that. But what we encounter here in this text is something that is every bit as powerful and as influential as the devil or the individual sinful soul. It is this world this broken world that we live in, which is now under the curse of sin. And that's what I want you to see this morning as we look at this particular text. Just moving through it quickly now, the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death. 
Now, just note that for a second. The chief priests are of the Sadducee tribe. They're of the Sadducee sect. Sadducees have a slightly different theology than Pharisees. Sadducees are individuals who reject the resurrection. And yet here they encounter an individual who has been resurrected. That obviously offends them. It proves that their theology and their understanding of Scripture is wrong. And so in order to remove the problem of their theology, encountering this man who's been raised from the dead, they concluded themselves, we're not only going to have to kill Jesus, but we're going to have to kill the guy that Jesus raised back to life. And I know what you're thinking. Well, isn't that a little bit preposterous? How do you kill someone who can restore people back to life? This is the nature of sin in the individual's soul. We see the crowd cheering him. They made plans to put Lazarus to death because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. And on the next day, large crowds had come to see the feast, who had come to the feast, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. They took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now his disciples didn't understand these things. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. Despite the plans of the chief priests and the religious establishment, the group that saw Lazarus come out of the tomb continued to bear witness and to testify about the fact that Jesus can turn back the power of the curse and reverse death and grant life and resurrection. They continued to testify openly about these things. This is the context in which Jesus is entering into Jerusalem. Verse 10, the reason why the crowd went out to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. And so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. They begin to rebuke each other. Why are we waiting around? Why are we delaying taking decisive action? We're not getting anywhere by being patient. This man who can raise people from the dead, we need to kill him now and the guy he raised from the dead. Now, if you encounter a man who has power over life and death, if you encounter a man who can raise someone back from the grave, if you encounter a man who is wildly heralded and proclaimed to be the object of your faith and your devotion, the one that you have been worshiping without knowing who he is your whole life as you attend synagogue, How is it, how is it that in six days' time you're going to turn around from proclaiming Jesus as the Lord to crying out for his crucifixion? John gives us two clues. I want you to look back at verse 15. This quotation from Zechariah 9 is not an exact quotation. He makes a statement, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming to you, sitting on a donkey's colt. But if you look at it, where it says fear not, if you actually look up the reference to Zechariah 9, that's not what it says in Zechariah 9. The expression here is rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. John quotes it, fear not, daughter of Zion. But in Zechariah, it's actually put down as rejoice greatly. 
And as we consider the other synoptic gospels, they all focus on this. Mark, of course, is just going to give you the facts. But both Matthew and Luke are going to establish this theme of rejoicing. They're going to say, rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. Matthew in particular is going to go into great detail about how Jesus acquired this donkey so that he could ride into Jerusalem and fulfill this prophecy. But John, writing much later on, he has a different goal in mind here. He's not altering the scriptures, but John is not making a mistake here either. He is wanting to draw your attention to something. You read this verse, you understand it starts off, rejoice greatly. He says, Jesus did this to fulfill the prophecy of Zechariah. Fear not, O daughter of Zion. We see two meanings at play here. The prophecy says, rejoice greatly. And John identifies the issue for why the crowd was reluctant to stay loyal to Christ. They were not rejoicing. They were not delighting as they should have in the Messiah. Indeed, there was an element of them that was still caught in fear. Now, when you look at this passage, the thing you want to do as you look at any passage is you want to make sure you pay attention to the context. Within this chapter, is there somewhere where we can go where John might spell out specifically what it is that they're afraid of? And indeed, within chapter 12, we find that he does. I want you to drop down to to verse 42. Jesus is in Jerusalem. It is Holy Week. And John points out the issue. In John 12, 42, he says, Many, even of the authorities, believed in him. The leaders of Israel are believing that Jesus is Messiah. However, look at this. For fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. As John is recounting Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem, he quotes from Zechariah 9.9, but he changes the introduction from rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, to fear not, O daughter of Zion, because John, having witnessed all of these things, understood that what led the crowd in just a few days' time to turn savagely on Jesus was the power of the world, the allure of what they could see in the supposed majesty of the religious establishment. They desired the glory that could come from men more than the glory that could come from God. A number of years ago, as I was making my way through university, I was introduced to a wonderful essay by C.S. Lewis. It was a commencement speech that he gave at Oxford, and the title of it is The Inner Ring. In this particular commencement, as C.S. Lewis is addressing these students who are graduating from university, He speaks to them on this very issue. I want you to listen to what what he has to say. First off, he describes this world in terms which I think, if you listen carefully, you will see it exactly as Mr. Lewis sees it. Speaking to this organization, he says, he contrasts the power of the world, the hierarchy of the world, with something more tangible, such as the hierarchy or the power of an organized army or a military. And he makes the statement, the one, the hierarchy of an organized military army, is printed in some little red book, and anyone can easily look it up and read it for themselves. It remains constant. A general is always going to be superior to a colonel. 
and a colonel is always going to be superior to a captain, and the other hierarchy is different. The hierarchy of the world is not printed anywhere, nor is it even formally organized. It's not as though it's a secret society with officers and rules which you will be told after you have been admitted. You are never formally and explicitly admitted into this hierarchy by anyone. You discover gradually almost in indefinable ways that it exists, and you discover that you are outside of it. And then later, perhaps in time, you discover that you are inside of it. He goes on to describe it. There are what correspond to passwords, but they are too spontaneous and informal. A particular slang, the use of particular nicknames, an elusive manner of conversation, these are the marks of this hidden society, this hidden order. But it is not so constant. It is not easy, even at any given moment, to say who is inside and who is outside. Some people are obviously in, in, some people are obviously in, and some are obviously out. But there are always several who are on the borderline or the fringe. And even if you come back to the same divisional headquarters, he's talking now about the military organization, even if you come back to the same divisional headquarters or brigade headquarters or the regiment or even the same company, after six weeks' time, you will note that things are largely the same. But, he goes on to say, you may find that while the hierarchy of this inner ring, as he calls it, may remain constant and same, it's always changing. And he's touching on this idea that there's a power behind the hierarchy, but those within this inner ring within the world are constantly shifting. And you and I, if you stop to think about it, we can relate. Any of us who've gone to grammar school or elementary, we've all known there were cool kids. And the cool kids knew they were cool until they weren't. And we wanted to be a part of the cool kid group. And for a short period of, season, of time, if we, if we extended ourselves and we worked hard at it, we might make friends with somebody who was cool, perhaps somebody who was athletic or somebody who was smart, somebody who was on the honor roll or somehow was in that inner circle. And we wanted to be in the inner circle. And we may have even gotten in for a short period of time only to find that those that were once in soon were out. And even over a period of time, perhaps we ourselves were out. We understand this as adults. You hear of those special, secretive investment organizations, a group of individuals investing in that particular business, and you think to yourself, oh, I've got to be a part of that. As you're looking around the office, you notice that there are a certain group of men, not defined by their their status within the organization or within the company who always get together and eat lunch together and seem to always know what is happening. And that's the group of men you want to join with and that you want to be a part of. This is the hierarchy of the world. A group of individuals who are in and a group of individuals who are out. It isn't written down. It isn't codified. It isn't clearly spelled out. It isn't clearly understood. But everybody knows this much. Being in is great, sort of, but being out is very dreadful. Lewis goes on to talk about this. He says, I believe that in all men's lives at certain periods, 
And in many men's lives at all periods, between infancy and extreme old age, one of the most dominant elements is the desire to be inside this local ring. And we know the terror of being outside of it. Notice the word that he used there. The terror of being outside of it. If you look back at the Gospel of John, listen very carefully to what John says about the crowd and why they would not confess Jesus, why they would not acknowledge him as Messiah. In John chapter 12, he makes the statement, many even of the authorities believed in him. The authorities. These are individuals who are part of the Sanhedrin. These are individuals who have a stake in the council. These are individuals who are going to be a part of the group that are going to try Jesus the night that he is betrayed. Within this group, John says, there were people there who believed in Jesus. The authorities believed it. Which means you should, at best case, have a hung jury. At worst case, have a hung jury. When they bring Jesus to be tried for blasphemy and all the other trumped up charges that they level against him, in which they could not get any two witnesses to come to agreement, when they're trying him through the night, You should at best, at worst case scenario, have at least a handful of these guys who believe that what they are doing is killing the Son of God. And they should object. But look at what John says. He refers to what C.S. Lewis identifies as the inner ring. Many of the authorities believed in him, but look at this. For fear of the Pharisees, The Pharisees do not sit on the governing council. They are the ones that run the synagogues. We've got two groups here, Sadducees and Pharisees. Those who are on the council, the authorities are identified as believing in Jesus, some of them. And yet, where the common man goes to worship, the synagogue, this organization is run by the Pharisees. And it makes a statement, for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. Why? For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. I love how C.S. Lewis concludes his speech. He says... It's a bore, really, to be a part of the inner ring. A terrible bore. To be a part of this group is quite often to give up your Saturday afternoons to find yourself at work taking care of business because, after all, it's you, Charles, and Peter who know really what's going on in this company. And if we want this company to continue as we would like, we're the ones who are going to have to work hard to make sure it comes off just so. Ah, but a terrible bore giving up your Saturday afternoons but how much more terrible if you were left out of the inner ring. If you were left out, what a tragedy that would be. It is tiring and unhealthy to lose your Saturday afternoons, but to have them free because you simply don't matter, well, that is much, much worse. And this is exactly what John is saying to us about why these people who heralded Jesus on Palm Sunday turned around 
to scream and cry out for his crucifixion the following Friday. Let us pause for a moment and reflect. What does this mean for you and me? Despite our most sincerest belief about ourselves, the scriptures indicate that there is a weakness within our soul, within our spirit. Even despite our most fervent profession of faith in Christ, there is within all of us this possibility, remote though it may seem to you, real nevertheless, that we have the ability, the potential to deny Christ. And some of you are sitting here thinking, that's not me. I want you to know you're in good company. There was a guy just like you who thought the same thing, a man named Peter. Jesus comes to Peter. He says, Peter, I tell you, this very night you're going to deny me three times before the alarm clock goes off in the morning, before the rooster crows. Peter says, no way. He doubles down. He says, even if I should have to die, I would rather die than deny you. And Jesus is like, yeah, okay, Peter, okay, good job. I'm sure you mean that. But he says, before the rooster crows three times, you will deny me. And sure enough, the next morning, Peter follows along. He makes his way into the courtyard. He has a view of what's going on. And do you know who it is that scares the living daylights out of Peter? Is it the Sadducees? Is it the religious establishment? Is it Roman centurions that come along? No. At the end of the day, the person that scares the living daylights out of Peter is a slave girl who identifies his accent and says, Hey, you're from Galilee. Aren't you one of his followers? I thought I saw you with him. And cursing Taking God's name in vain, he says, I swear to you, I don't know the man. And as soon as he says it, the rooster crows. Peter hears it. He turns, and Jesus looks right at him. For this group here, Jesus is riding into Jerusalem. And do you know what they're chanting? Hoshiana. Save, save, save. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Quoting from Psalm 18, a psalm that they all would have known very well, that they would have read during Passover. A messianic psalm. Do you know what Psalm 118 says in the first couple of verses? Verses six to nine from Psalm 118. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear man, for what can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look on in triumph upon those who would hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. This is how Psalm 118 begins, and it concludes with, Hoshiana, save, Lord, save. They're quoting this to Jesus as he enters. They're identifying him as the Lord. They're saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They have no idea how much they needed the very psalm that they were quoting. The good news for you and me, church, 
as we bring this Palm Sunday service to a conclusion. Jesus knows that this crowd, which hails him as a hero on Sunday, but will cry out for his crucifixion on a Friday, is hypocritical. And yet I am absolutely convinced that he still looked upon them with love. They didn't understand the full magnitude of what it was that they were saying to him. They didn't understand the hypocrisy that they would be involved in in just a few days' time. Jesus knew it all. He understood it all. And he still comes for them. And he still comes for you and me. The good news of Palm Sunday is that Jesus still enters in to the place of sin and deception and treachery. He still comes in order to go to the cross. He goes to the cross for you and he goes to the cross for me. And so what should our response be to such wonderful news? I think it should be that, simply that, a prayer of salvation. You could say hoshi ana if you wanted. You could say it as the Japanese might say it, sebu, sebu. Perhaps you know someone who is from China. I know we have individuals here from TRU, Chinese students, Mandarin, Baoswin, Perhaps you're Spanish or Hispanic. Salvar. I know we have an Italian in the house. Italian, very similar to the Spanish language. Salvare. Perhaps French. Enregistri. I have no idea if my accent is even remotely close enough. <laughs> German. Sparen. Russian. Spasti. Filipino. Iligatas. Dutch. Upslan. Swedish. Spara. Thai. Preyad. Arabic. Havel. One. It doesn't matter what tribe or tongue you're from. It doesn't matter what nationality you're from. It doesn't matter whether you're Jewish or Gentile. It does not matter. This is what Jesus has come to do, to die for our sins, to enter into the place of torment on our behalf that we might call upon him in the English language, if that's the one you use. Lord, save my prayer for you is that you would call upon the Lord to save you. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you for your salvation. We thank you, Father, for sending your Son to be the price of justice, to be the payment for our sins, to satisfy your anger and to take away your wrath. We thank you, God, that we can be forgiven because of Jesus. And as we enter into Holy Week, as we begin to reflect upon this crucifixion that is about to take place and all of the sordid and horrific details of torture and tragedy that accompany it, I pray, Father, that your people would be reminded of your incredible love. And I pray, God, that we would call upon you because of your faithfulness, that you would save us. Your faithfulness is great, Lord, and we say thank you. Thank you for sending your Son to die for us. It is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.